Wednesday night, we're gonna start the Gospel of Mark. On Wednesday, we'll get into the introduction to the Gospel of Mark and into the first chapter. Uh, we just finished Matthew as we go right through the Bible. That's what we do. Um, so we're gonna take our text from Mark chapter one uh, this morning. There was a hen and a pig who were walking down the road and they saw there by the farm, there was a little church and on the church it said, help feed the homeless, help feed the poor. Well, the chicken came over the idea and said to the pig, hey, we should be kind and try to help the problem. And, and I think we should make a nice breakfast for homeless people. You know, I'll provide the eggs, you provide the bacon. <laughs> and the pig said, thought for a second and said, for you it requires only a contribution, but for me it requires total commitment. And uh, it's interesting because that's really what the Lord Jesus asks of us. He asks for a total commitment. Now, one of the things we have to uh, think about, by the way, I'm gonna move this microphone so I can see you guys. I don't like looking at microphones. Um, so, because you guys are so attractive in this section particularly. Uh, <laughs> these guys are a little rough, but no, just kidding. But um, no, we, um, uh, you know, we, we, we hear from the Lord that we're, we're supposed to present our bodies a living sacrifice, which is, are you know, your reasonable service. In fact, um, you, you know, Romans tells us that. Uh, there in Romans chapter 12, it makes it clear, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto our God, which is your reasonable service. He's not asking for something unreasonable, but a reasonable service is to present yourself a living sacrifice to the Lord. And, and, and then once you do that, the Bible has all kinds of things to say of how we're supposed to live for the Lord. In fact, I love Colossians 3, 23, whatsoever you do, um, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. And that's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to be. Um, the Lord does ask us to be set apart, sanctified, that our lives be different than everyone else. And, and, and one of the things we have to talk about carefully uh, is what saves a person but what do you do after you're saved? Because we get this confused. Some people think you're saved when you start serving Jesus and walking with him. Well, there's a little bit of truth to that in the sense that once you're saved, that's gonna be something the Lord will stir in your heart to want to follow him, to want to serve him. Uh, people get this all wrong. What saves you? Um, well, I love Ephesians. I talk about this one all the time because this is so perfectly clear. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So when, when it comes to salvation, you can't save yourself. You can't add to your work, the work of salvation. You can't do better than Jesus did in saving you. Um, some of you maybe were raised up, you know, thinking you'll, you'll get to heaven if you work hard enough or if you love Jesus enough. Um, and some people think they're gonna somehow earn God's favor by doing and being. Um, I've got some good news and some bad news. The bad news first, you cannot earn God's favor. That's the bad news. The good news is you already have God's favor. God already loves you for God so loved the world. That's even before they accepted Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You, don't, you can't earn God's favor, but you have God's favor. He loves you so much that he's giving you beautiful, the gift of salvation. It's the gift of God by grace through faith. That's how you're saved. Now, sometimes people start to mix it up and say, well, there has to be good works if you're gonna be saved. And the cults will teach that you have to be saved by good works. If your deeds, your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, 
uh, well, that's, that's actually a, a bad theology. None of our deeds are good enough and they never will be. However, you say, but Brett, you're just showing Paul what he said. I, I agree with James more than I agree with Paul. When James says faith without works is dead. Well, do you understand? Paul and James aren't contradicting one another. They're actually saying the same things, really. You're saved by grace through faith, period. But when you're saved by grace, once that's already happened, you're already saved, then works are something you're gonna want to do. You're gonna want to serve Jesus and walk with him. Now, there's varying degrees on what you choose to do. There's some people that are saved, and when they get to heaven, they're gonna smell like smoke, and there'll be fire on their coattails, and we'll be there. Welcome to heaven. But, um, but you made it. But there will be others who really did, they're saved, and then they did what the Lord called them to be, and that is disciples, followers of Jesus. Um, and that's an important thing. And, and so what, what you have to kind of ask yourself is, is you know, are you a disciple? Are you a follower of Jesus? Um, how sold out are you for Christ? Or are there things that get in the way of you being a disciple, a follower of Jesus? And you can measure that by what you spend your time doing mostly or what your attentions or affections are on, your priorities. Um, and, you know, it's funny because one of the things you learn in watching history is the church that has been persecuted over the ages usually find these radical Christians who are willing to die for their faith. I worry that in America for too long, we've been so comfortable that we're kind of like, yeah, praise Jesus, I can go to church and I can read the Bible and I'm a Christian. But are we so sold out that we, we wouldn't sell out if we were told to deny our Christian faith? I heard the story uh, on the radio by Bible League uh, who told the story in North Korea, not exactly a friendly Bible Christian area of the world, North Korea. Um, there's a story that's told of a teacher, uh, t some teachers in a school that asked their students if they knew where their parents kept that special little black book in their house. And some of those kids said, yeah, my mom and dad have one of those. They said, great, would you bring it to school tomorrow? And if you do, you'll get a prize. And so 14 of the students of the classroom brought the little black book, which is the Bible, uh, to the class. And sure enough, they gave those children a purple ribbon to wear around their neck. They were Bibles that they gave. Well, the teacher stacked them up on the desk. The children were given the ribbon. And then when the children went home, their parents were gone. No one told them where they were. The next day, the children were placed in orphanages because their parents were placed in prison. Why? Because they had a Bibles, they were Christians, and they were, they were putting themselves at risk having a Bible in their house. You and I have Bibles piled up in our houses, and man, we go, oh yeah, there's my Bible. <sighs> and like here in America, we're like so, we're so Bible-oriented and stuff, it's great, but we, we don't even, do we even value that we have Bibles? There's people that would die to have a Bible in their house, and there are people that are willing to do that. Does it cost you and me to be a Christian today? And by the way, it's starting to happen. It's something that we've talked about in times past, but I think persecution is actually here for some people. There's people here at Aetha Creek that have been fired from their job because they're not willing to use the proper pronouns in the workplace, proper quote unquote. Um, but here's the thing, as a, as a Christian, we're, we're told not to live by lies and not to, to just agree with things that are godless and, wor and worldly and sinful. And, and, um, and if your workplace is doing that, are you willing to say, no, I am not gonna cave just because my workplace is making me do something that's contrary to Christ. We're starting to see stuff like that. Um, there's, there's actually aggression 
and, and violence is starting to be aimed at Christians who disagree. And uh, we're seeing that on the rise. You know, uh, a lot of people in the church, oh, there's no persecution day. And until heads are rolling and stakes are burning and the lions are digesting the remains of the faithful, uh, there's no such thing as persecution. But we're seeing that creep in. And if you know anything about history, it starts with the small and then eventually it becomes more violent. And that's something that's happened. Now, here's a question for you. If persecution comes, which I think it's inevitable, it's coming, uh, you say, Brett, that's only gonna happen in the tribulation. Oh, I think the tribulation is gonna be the worst of ever, but that doesn't mean it's not gonna happen before the rapture of the church and before the tribulation kicks into gear. So what do we do, Brett? When people are threatening to persecute, do we shoot them with an AR? It's funny how there is, there is kind of that narrative. And I, and I, I am for you know, protecting your home and your family and all that stuff, of course. But what does Jesus actually tell us to do when it comes to this idea of persecution, how are we supposed to behave? Well, Matthew 5, 11 and 12 says this, blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. If we find ourselves being persecuted, Jesus says, don't shoot them but you rejoice and be exceeding glad. Why? Because your reward in heaven's gonna be great. I remember when I was a kid reading Fox's Book of Martyrs, wondering why didn't they fight back a little bit more? You know, and, and there, there's, a, there's a notion that's out there. They should have all fought back. But I, I remember reading this one story and I realized that this one woman was so much more incredible than I could ever be. Um, when I read the story, story in Fox's Book of Martyrs of a woman named Perpetua, uh, if you haven't read Fox Book of Martyrs, it's the Christians who died for their faith in the first century through the third century. And they're amazing stories of people who were just so faithful. Um, this one story, you know, there's stories of burning at the stake and people that have been beheaded and sizzled on barbecue grills for their faith in Christ. But Perpetua was this amazing woman who was uh, this young, beautiful woman. She had this little baby. They, they took the baby from her and they, they pushed her into the arena with a bunch of other Christians and there in the middle of the arena, all the other Christians had been slain brutally, various torturous kinds of ways. Perpetua, this beautiful young woman, was the last one alive standing there. And finally, they commanded the one soldier that was down in there to say, he said, you know, they said, stick her through the belly with your, spear, with your uh, sword. And the guy was shaken by that. The, the soldier, the seasoned soldier comes walking up to Perpetua and, and those that were there watching said that her face glowed like literal glowing and she was rejoicing the whole time. And the soldier came up and so moved was he by her, just her countenance and, and what his job was to kill her, he actually tremor, trembled enough to, he dropped his sword. Well, the other commanding officer screamed at him, kill her now or you will be beheaded within seconds, they said to the soldier. And he, he was like frozen there. He didn't know what to do. Well, Perpetua reaches down on the ground, picks up the sword and hands it to him. Says, it's okay, save yourself. That's what she said. And the soldier stood there a little longer and, and, and um, he, but he just couldn't get enough to just stick her through. And finally, they, they started marching toward him with their swords. They were gonna behead the soldier. And she said, no, save yourself. It's okay. And, and with joy on her face, she said that. But when he refused to do it, she grabbed his sword and pulled it through her body, saving that man's life. What a story. I would have said, 
If I would have got the sword on the ground, I would have started fighting back. I would have tried to stick at least one of them before I got killed. Um, but isn't it something where the Bible says, you know, um, you're supposed to be willing to lose your life for my sake. Hmm, that's an interesting thing. Well, as it turns out, we begin Mark chapter one where there's four guys that are chosen by Jesus and they're gonna have to make a decision. Are we gonna wholly follow the Lord and be disciples of him? Or are we gonna just stick to our normal day, everyday thing? Uh, once you meet Jesus, is your life changed? Well, these guys are gonna be changed forever. And it happens right here in Mark chapter one. Let's take a look. Mark chapter one, verses 16 through 20. It says in Mark 1, 16, now as he, Jesus, walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the ship, mending their nets. And straightway he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. Four disciples chosen by Jesus to follow him now. And this is an amazing thing. There in Capernaum, where these guys were from, uh, it was a fishing community. There were two main industries of that area, small little town on the Sea of Galilee, but the first industry was fishing. The second industry was they made millstones. When they dug up Capernaum in the archeological digs, if you go to Capernaum today, you'll see beautiful pillars and a synagogue and some really cool ruins of the ancient cities of Capernaum. But then there's like a thousand millstones laying around everywhere. And the reason why is they, they kept finding millstones and they thought at first, wow, these people were really into their grain. Uh, everybody in the house has had millstones. Well, actually, no, there was a millstone factory there. And so that's kind of what the way you'd survive is being a fisherman or a millstone cutter. But as it turned out, these guys, their profession, it wasn't that they were hobbyists, fly fishermen hanging out at the river or whatever. These guys were, these guys, this was their career. In fact, most people believe Zebedee had a business who was the father of James and John, and uh, they had hired servants, it says here, that were part of the crew. Um, what a deal. So suddenly this guy comes along and says, leave your nets and follow me. Now, what makes you do that? What makes you just leave your career to follow some guy you don't even know? Well, Brett, he was the Messiah. He was the king. No wonder they followed him. Well, remember, they didn't know he was the Messiah yet. In fact, it would take them a long time to fully understand that. Peter would ultimately get it in Matthew 16 when he said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, Son of the living God. But I'm convinced that those guys didn't know the full story until after Jesus died, was buried and rose from the grave. Then they all got it for sure. But why would they at the very first meeting of Jesus, you know, the Bible tells us that when Jesus spoke, the people said, man, he speaks as one having authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees, but he's got a, a weightiness to his talking. I wonder if Jesus just came and said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. If there was something about the way Jesus said it and with the authority that he held, they just said, okay, we're gonna leave our nets, our careers. I have to say, leaving your nets, that, that, you gotta give the guys credit. A perfectly good job leaving it to follow some guy that is sort of an itinerant rabbi. What are they thinking? I wonder if Peter had to explain to his wife, honey, I quit my job today. What are you doing? I'm following this guy named Jesus. Uh, how are we gonna pay the bills? 
Um, it's an interesting thing. When we become Christians, sometimes I think there's times where we need to look at forsaking stuff that we think might be valuable or important to follow Jesus. Um, that's kind of an important thing. Um, you know, it's interesting that, um, you know, we do things for uh, wrong reasons and right reasons. And what is your motive for following Jesus and how passionate are you about following Jesus? What's your motive? It's like the farmer that put in a ad in the classified section of the newspaper and it read, farmer with 160 irrigated acres wants to marry a beautiful woman with a tractor. <laughs> he went on, when replying, please show a picture of the tractor. <laughs> Why do you follow Christ? Is it for the right reason? Um, you know, it's funny how we can want stuff from Jesus. People have talked about why are young people leaving the church? It's interesting, by the way, if you've been studying or even seeing the news recently, there was an article yesterday, I think, that came out and said young people are returning to the church. Uh, we've all been hearing for three years now, everybody's leaving the church. But there are some young people that are migrating back into the church. So it's been a short term, the whole COVID thing, a bunch of people left church, now there's a bunch of people coming back. Who knows whether these studies are right? I, I tend to not believe much of them, but... Um, one of the things I've observed is people leave the church because we've given them the wrong gospel. If the gospel to you is accept Jesus and your life will be rosy and you'll be wealthy and healthy and wise and, and you'll be victorious living. You know, there's whole churches that'll teach you over and over again, victory, it's all victory, victory. I always like to compare a sermon and say, did that work for Jesus? Does this sermon fit the apostle Paul? So like if you're listening to Olstein down in Texas and hear his sermons, oh, you're big enough, smart enough, you know, you're good enough and you're gonna live victoriously and all this stuff. I'm sorry, but that didn't work for Jesus or Paul the apostle or Peter or pretty much anybody in the Bible. Um, you see, you gotta watch out because if your gospel is you accept Jesus and then you live a rosy life and you're gonna be wonderful, well, that's, that's not the gospel at all. The gospel is this, you're a sinner who's going to hell. And praise be to a loving God who says, I love you so much that I will die in your place so that you will be saved from hell. And when you become a Christian, the one thing you can be glad about is, man, I'm no longer headed for eternal death and separation from God, but I get to go to heaven by the grace of God. That's, the gospel is accepting Jesus as your savior from hell. The gospel is not accepting Jesus that your life is rosy and everything works out perfectly. So when people think that is the gospel and when they get cancer or they get fired or they don't have enough money to pay their bills, they say, well, see, this Christian thing doesn't work. And so they bail and say, we're leaving the church because Jesus doesn't help us. Well, that's not the gospel. The reason I say that is these guys, they're gonna leave their nets and they're gonna follow Jesus and it's gonna cost them greatly. All the disciples are gonna die brutal deaths for following Jesus, except for John. He almost died brutal. They tried to boil the old guy, but he wouldn't die. But the rest of those guys were, were martyrs for the Christian faith. To follow Jesus, don't be shocked if it costs you. And the reason I say that is not to be depressing for everyone here, but I just wonder if we're so, uh, you know, we've normalized, well, Christian is just going to church and having a wonderful Sunday morning and uh, everything's wonderful and great. But I wonder if we're headed for days where, you and I should be thinking about what if it costs me? What if my boss says you have to use the proper pronouns or else you're gonna be fired? Are you willing to say, oh, I better use the right pronouns even though I know it's totally not true? Um, or am I gonna live a lie and speak a lie? Or am I gonna be a follower of Christ? I think it's gonna cost us as the time goes by. We're seeing that more and more in our culture.
And so that starts to make me wonder, are you ready to leave the nets that the Lord has called you to leave, to follow him? Because if you stick to your nets, you're not gonna be following Jesus. That's what I'm so impressed by our disciples here. It says there in our text, they forsook their nets. And see, that's the first observation of our study here this morning is, is that's amazing to me that they forsook their nets. It says it right there, um, straightway they forsook their nets, verse 18, and followed Jesus. That's so cool. And the question becomes for you and me, if Jesus calls you to be a disciple, with, which if you're a Christian, you have been called to be a follower of Jesus. And if, you, if you're a Christian and you're saved, you, you've been called to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, which oftentimes means you gotta leave some nets behind. What are the nets in your life that keep you from following Jesus wholeheartedly? Um, and what are you doing with your life that's gonna matter for eternity? All the stuff you do, is it temporary or is there eternal lasting benefit of the stuff that you're doing with your life? That's something for us to ask. And it makes me ask, what are some of the nets that keep you? In fact, that's the second thing we consider in this. What are some of the nets that we cling to that we should let go? Um, for some of you, it might be relationships with other people. Um, maybe if you're a young single girl, you're like, uh, I'm gonna marry this guy and he's really a nice guy. Yeah, but is he a Christian? Is he gonna be one pulling you along and saying, come follow me as I follow Christ? Or is he a guy that says, well, but I love him, Brett. Pastor Brett, I love him, he's hot. Um, can I just tell you, that's, that's such a horrible reason to get married. Um, find somebody that's gonna be following Christ. Um, don't, don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Or, or even if a guy says, yeah, check the Christian box. But you don't wanna, how many times have I seen relationships with husbands or wives that weren't able to really follow Jesus because their spouse is holding them back? And you know, once you're married, there's, there's not a lot you can do about that. Um, I've also seen it where people have friendships that hold them back and the Lord would say, follow me. But your friends don't want you to do that. And they'll say, yeah, you can be a Christian just as long as you still hang out with us and goof around and have a good time and still do stuff that's holding you back from following Christ. Some of you even have family members. Brett, are you suggesting that we uh, might have to leave our family members? No, I didn't suggest that. Jesus did. Where did he say that? Well, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus in chapter 10, verse 37, says that he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it and he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. Boy, this is one of those ironies. The more you try to gain this life, Jesus said, you're gonna lose it. People do that all the time. And they cling to the cheap, plasticky, waste of time stuff. When the Lord says, I wanna reward you with eternal value. Weighty, good, solid rewards is what the Lord wants to do. And, and, and so we cling to the things. Maybe it's not people and relationships, maybe it's stuff material possessions, and you're so bent on saying, I need to have that house or that car or that income or whatever, you know, maybe it's even money that you're driven by that keeps you from saying, I'm gonna follow Jesus. See, Jesus went to the Sea of Galilee and asked these fishermen to leave their nets, and that's hard for us to get our brains around. What if Jesus went to the Sea of Cubicles at Intel and walked among you and said, leave your terminal and follow me? and I will make you computers of men. Ah, that doesn't work, but I will make you, you know, 
What? I love this, that, that he, he called them to be fishers of men because they were fishermen. I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But, but I wonder if, if, if the Lord would call you out of something. Maybe it's a job that you're just kind of like, well, at least I got an income. But the Lord is saying, no, I've got more for you, but you will not get that until you're willing to leave your nets and follow me. I love that these disciples were willing to do that. Maybe it's your goals and plans that are in the way of following Jesus. I think parents do this to their kids. I, I have to admit, as, as the years have gone by, now when parents come and say, Brett, we're sending our kids off to college, I think, oh no, what a bummer. Because it's no longer an education, it's an indoctrination. And it's a horrifying work that most of these universities, Brett, I, I, we sent our kids to a Christian university. That's even worse. Because we have this sense of safety and it's all good because they're Christians and they're, they're not gonna teach things that are untrue. Watch out, mom and dad. Watch out, college student. Because some of our, you know, the worst departments in a lot of these Christian universities are the theology department, the psychology department. I've noticed in the Christian universities, if you wanna find the awesome professors, go to the math department or the science department. I know that there's some good profs out there that are in other, you know, I understand that, but I have to admit, even locally here, I see uh, our kids, you know, it just, it just makes me so sad. George Fox, you know, I have a bunch of friends who attended George Fox, and over the years, they were a great school, but lately, last 10, 20 years, one of our staff members here, great guy on our staff team, went to school at George Fox just a few weeks or three months ago, and um, one of the professors started the class up. Now you kids should make sure and plug into church, you know, but whatever you do, don't go to Athey Creek Christian Fellowship. Uh, I was like, did you tell him you worked there? Um, and I know the reasons why these professors are saying that. And it has to do with women's roles in ministry and stuff that they all want to talk about. That, uh, but, but it also has to do with the inspiration of scripture. Do you really take the Bible literally? And do you believe it's the inspired, inerrant word of God? They hate Athey Creek because some of these profs, because we believe in the inerrancy of scripture. I mean, that's stuff that used to be normal. Uh, George Fox used to teach the Bible was infallible and inerrant. Not all their profs teach that anymore. And you're sending your kids to these schools hoping, well, I hope they don't get too tainted. Oh man, could that be a net that you need to let go, mom and dad, or even college student? Brett, are you arguing for not necessarily going to college? Exactly. <laughs> we'll save you 50 grand a, a term and, or a year or whatever, and, and you'll be able to uh, probably get a better job anyway. So uh, especially if you're studying French, French poetry, but um, uh, that's a whole nother topic. Sometimes the nets that we cling to are secret sins. The sins that we have that nobody else knows about, but the Lord says, I want you to follow me. Be a disciple. But because you're clinging to some sin, remember David, the psalmist said, oh Lord, cleanse thou me of my secret sins. I wonder if there's secret faults that some of you might be clinging to that are the nets that the Lord says, forsake your nets and come and follow me. Reminds me of a story. Little Jenny was five years old little golden curls as she bounced around with her mom in the little grocery store. And as they were coming out of the store, there was that little section that lures kids to the little toys. And sure enough, she saw this little plastic pearl necklace. Oh, mommy, could I please have this little pearl necklace? And the mom looked, oh, that's $2, Jenny. Uh, tell you what, if you save your money and maybe we'll do a few extra chores around the house, we'll give you some allowance and maybe you can you know, save up enough to get it yourself. She said, okay. So she went home and cracked open her piggy bank and she had 17 cents. 
But she thought, you know, my birthday's next week and grandma always gives me a crisp dollar bill for my birthday. So I got a dollar coming, 17 cents. Maybe I can work off the rest. And so sure enough, she diligently did chores as a little five-year-old bounding around the house, doing her little chores. And it was only a week and a half later, she was able to go to the store with her mom and get the pearl necklace. Oh, she loved her pearl necklace. She wore it to school, kindergarten. She wore it to Sunday school. She wore it to bed. She wore her necklace everywhere except for the pool because when she jumped in the pool, it made her neck turn green. And so her mom made her take it off. But she loved that. But Jenny had a loving father too. Her, her dad was a, a guy who was kind and, and he, he'd come in every night, tuck her in, read her a story, give her a little kiss on the cheek and say goodnight. And that was our tradition. But this one night, Jenny was there wearing her pearls to bed and, and her dad you know, read the story and, and then said, honey, you know I love you, right? Yes, daddy, I love you too. Well, would you then please give me your pearl necklace? Oh, no, daddy. Oh, you can have my pink pony. I'll give you my pink pony instead. I don't want your pink pony. I'd like to have your pearls, Jenny. Oh, no, daddy. He said, oh, that's okay, that's okay. And he brushed her with a nice little kiss and tucked her in and said goodnight. About five nights later, her dad did the same thing. Read her story and said, Jenny, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, daddy, I love you. Will you please give me your pearls? No, daddy, you can have my Betsy Wetsy. I'll give you my Betsy Wetsy. I don't want your Betsy Wetsy. I want your pearls. That's okay, though. And he kissed her goodnight and walked out. Did this several nights in a row. And eventually, one night, he walks into her room and there's Jenny sitting Indian style on her bed with a little lonely tear trickling down her cheek with her little hand held, held, holding tight and she reached out to her dad and handed her the little plastic pearls. Said, Daddy, here's the pearls I wanna give them to you. And a smile came across the daddy's face with a tear rolling down his cheek. And he took the little necklace and put it in her pocket and said, thank you, Jenny, that's awesome. And then he reached into his other pocket and pull, pulled out something he had all along, a real string of pearls that he had wanted to give Jenny. But it wasn't until she gave up that that he gave her the real deal. We have a father in heaven who says, leave your nets, follow me. Oh no, I don't wanna leave my nets. Um, Lord, you can have Sunday morning uh, when I come to church. I don't want your Betsy Wetsy. Uh, we, we think we are offering God some really huge thing, but as it turns out, God is saying, no, I want you to leave your nets. And so it is with our heavenly father. He is waiting for us to give up our cheap things in our lives so that he can actually offer something that's eternal. It's a beautiful treasure, an inheritance that's there. But what is some of that that tends to stop us? We cling to our cheap little pearls that turn our neck green. I hope that you and I are not clinging to stuff that's a total waste of time. Be careful about that, Christian. Um, we have a loving father who's got great things for his kids. By the way, I'm so thankful. There's so many things about being a Christian that I got at a very early age that was almost more muscle memory than it was me trying to be faithful. And I got this from my parents. You know, to, to be a faithful Christian, you know, you're not saved by these things, but, but once you're saved, going to church is kind of a thing. Uh, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Uh, reading your Bible, praying, giving of your tithe, uh, an offering to the Lord. These are all things that the Lord would tell us in his word. Here's what I want you to do. And it's part of leaving your nets, you know, and all that. But I'm so thankful I had parents who taught me at the youngest age. I remember when I earned my first dollar uh, allowance, my mom paid me in dimes. 
And the reason she gave me 10 dimes and said, here's your dollar, I was kind of hoping for the paper, you know, the big stuff. Um, but one, the reason she did that, I said, but I, I need to remind you, and I forget how old I was. I couldn't have been more than three and a half or four or whatever, but she handed me the 10 dimes and then said, now remember, one of these belongs to the Lord. You get to keep the, the, the nine other ones. Isn't that amazing? You get to keep nine? And, and I learned this from a very early age. Uh, I don't even remember not tithing. I remember when I turned 13 and got my first big job, the big bucks, buck and hay in Applegate Valley. Man, all summer we'd go out there and just buck hay and it was awesome, a way to earn some money. I remember getting my paycheck. But I, by that time, by the time I was 13, I didn't think, should I tithe 10% of my income to the Lord? I didn't have to ask that. It was so knee-jerk by that time. I knew that, well, this part, first, the first part goes to the Lord. The rest of it, guess what? I get to keep 90%. That's awesome. And then when I got a bigger job and got older, I never once have had to wonder. By the way, there's something about being taught in early age. Mom and dad take advantage of the time when you have your kids. Teach them these things early about walking with the Lord, about reading the word, about prayer and going to church. And going to church for me was a non-negotiable. So that when I got into high school and was playing football, and I wasn't a great football player, but I was the only guy over 200 pounds on our whole team. So I was kind of needed desperately. So when the coaches said, hey, our practice, we're gonna go, our practices are gonna go a little later uh, on Wednesday nights. And, and I had to go up. I didn't even have to go and say, I need to ask my mom and dad. No, I went and said, coach, listen, I'm 100% on the team, but I can't, I have church on Wednesday nights. Well, you cannot go to church for the season, uh, no. And I told my coaches, I, I can't do it. Um, now, because I was the only 200 pound guy on the team, they said, okay, we'll change our, uh, uh, you know, but, but I was ready to be kicked off the team or at least benched for not going to the practices. I was ready for that because church was a priority for me growing up, muscle memory. It makes decisions really easy for me, uh, things that I do or don't do because I was taught by parents who were, were helpful in that. About a decade ago, or maybe a little more than that now, it's, it's funny how time goes by, but um, I remember reading uh, an article on this handball tournament that was here in Portland. It was the national tournament uh, in Portland, Oregon, uh, handball. And uh, the guy that won was interviewed afterward because it was shocking that he won for two reasons. One, he was 10 years older than the rest of the players. Um, the second thing was he only had one hand. If you know handball, they, they use both their hands in the court of handball, and that's part of the deal right and left hand. But he only had one hand and he won the whole thing. And the, the news person that was interviewing in this article said, what's the secret? And how is it that you can win with only one hand? And he said, I've got one word, decisions. He said, everybody else is wondering which hand should I use? <laughs> but he says, my decision is already made. I only got one choice and, and so I just commit. And, and I loved that because I thought that's true with life. If you make up your mind Remember when Daniel says that he purposed in his heart not to defile himself with the king's meat? It wasn't like they put the king's meat in front of him and said, oh, should I eat this stuff? No, it was already in his heart. It was already a purpose that he had held. He'd already committed to the deal. And that's really what I think it's gonna take for, for us as Christians to get to that muscle memory where it's not, should I, should I tithe? Should I read the Bible? Should I go to church this morning? Uh, no, it's just part of who we are. It's muscle memory. I think it's so good when, when we get to that place because then there's plenty of other things we can work on after that. That the Lord wants to grow us, mature us, and disciple us. Uh, what an important thing that is. So this idea of leaving your nets, what are the nets that are causing you to be held back? Um, 
By the way, I, I worry about all this stuff as I think about this congregation because, you know, when the church was smaller, uh, you know, we all knew each other and, and we kind of were able to sort of lovingly hold each other accountable and we, we could see how each other was, we were doing. Um, and then the church got to 500 people and I thought, oh man, this is too big. I remember telling our elders at the time, hey, we gotta stop growth now because this is a big church. We don't know how to, how to uh, handle this 500 people. And, and we've been working really, really hard ever since to try to shepherd, care for, love on a congregation. But I do, I, you know, we were, I, was, I was kind of mixed emotions on Easter Sunday. Um, I had great joy because, well, we had um, on Easter Sunday, seven services, 13,600 people came to church on, on Easter Sunday, which is awesome. That's great. It's a lot of people. Um, even more joyful was that um, so many people accepted Christ at every single service. There were groups of people just, just accepting Christ. It was just so great. I love that. The part that I have mixed feelings on is the bigger we get, the, the, the more I worry, are we a church where you can just come, check the Christian box on Sunday, and then take off and be a normal person every, every other day of the week? Because that's not really what we want. We don't really, I've never asked for a big church. That's not something I ever really wanted. But what I would ask for is big people, big spiritual people, people that are followers of Christ and disciples of Jesus. Um, not just checking the box. Well, I heard another boring teaching by Pastor Brett. Check the box. Lord, remember, I went to church that Sunday, listened to that long sermon. That's not really what we're looking for here at Athey. We wanna first see people saved, uh, hear the gospel and be saved. But then we, we also wanna see where you grow in your faith and you're discipled and you start becoming used, whether it's here in the church, but maybe even more importantly, out there in the world to make you fishers of men like Jesus called the disciples. I think he's called all of us to that. Go into all the world, preach the gospel. Um, to start making it muscle memory to be a, a disciple of Christ, a follower of Jesus. That's what we need here at Athey Creek. So that's something we pray for here a lot. Not just a big church, but deep-rooted disciples of Jesus Christ. Man, that's such a good thing. In fact, by the way, that's one of the things we should be worried about because the enemy wants to rob you and rip you off. Um, I love John 10, 10. The thief comes not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I, Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Well, Brett, which one is it? Abundant life or suffering and persecution? See, I believe when Jesus offers abundant life, it has to do with the abundance of what he wants to do in your life. And that could be through suffering or even through joy. And it can happen either way. But ultimately, eternal life and abundant life go hand in hand. As you walk with Jesus, the Lord will give you abundant life even if you are persecuted, even if you do go through difficult times. So of these disciples, we learn so much. First, they forsook their nets. And then the question we asked, what are some of the nets that you're clinging to that are holding you back. That'd be something for you to think about this week. Pray about, Lord, are there nets that I'm clinging to that you're asking me to leave? Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a relationship that you shouldn't be in. Maybe it's a habit that is formed. Whatever it is, may the Lord give you ears to hear. But Christ called them to be fishers of men. And then I wanna point out uh, next on this is notice that Christ used what they already knew. This is something that's not new to the Bible. In fact, God seems to use people right where they're at with the giftings and talents they already have. So when the Lord says, leave your nets, maybe for you, it's not nets. I wanna open your mind to, to see what is it the Lord, because see, even though the Lord made them leave their nets, it was still the idiom of fishers of men. 
using an idiom of something they already knew, how to be fishermen. Collect as many fish as you possibly can. And the Lord says to them, I can use that. You're fishermen, I can use that. And this reminds me of almost all the Bible characters. The Lord says, what, what do you got in your hand? See, the, the disciples had in their hand a net. And the Lord says, you need to drop those nets, but I'm gonna make you use a different kind of net and make you fishers of men. I'm reminded of Moses. God calls Moses there in the wilderness. He's 80 years old. God says, okay, now you're called to ministry. Well, I'm not able to minister. I can't speak right. I can't, I can't. And, and Moses argues with God for three pages of your Bible. It's kind of hilarious how Moses sort of argues with the Lord. Um, but the conversation turns right about uh, there in Exodus chapter four, uh, where it says in verse one, and Moses answered and said, but behold, they will not believe me nor hearken to my voice, for they will say the Lord hath not appeared unto thee. And this is where the thing turns. The Lord said unto him, what is that in thine hand? And he said, a rod. And he said, cast it on the ground. And he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from before it. And the Lord said unto Moses, put forth thine hand and take it by the tail. So he put forth his hand and caught it and it became a rod in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob hath appeared unto thee. I love this. This is, this is the way the Lord works. Moses is out there being a shepherd and he's content at this point in his life. 80 years old, content to be a shepherd in the backside of the desert. But the Lord says, nope, I want you to, I want you to see what's in your hand. Well, I have a shepherd's rod in my hand. Well, that's, I can use that. And just like the disciples had to drop their nets, the Lord says, throw down your rod on the ground. Sometimes that's what has to happen first. The talents, the giftings, you have to kind of throw it down and then pick it up in a different way. That's what Moses had to do. He saw it for what it was, a serpent. The rod is a symbol of authority, by the way, in the Bible. And, and was the rod effective in Moses' ministry? If you know the story, without Moses' rod, the story would have been much more boring. Uh, Moses would have stuck his hand out over the Red Sea, open, and crickets. But instead he had the rod of God in his hand and he put it over the sea and he said, you know, uh, stand still and see the, the, you know, the power of the Lord and the water opens up. Like the rod was kind of an important part of Moses' ministry, but it's what he had in his hand. What do you have in your hand? What's in your wallet? No, that's a, that's a different commercial. <laughs> What's in your hand? Uh, my dad, the Lord did this with my dad. What was in my dad's hand? Um, he, uh, he was a builder. Uh, back in the day before they used a lot of these pneumatic, uh, you know, hammers and nailers and stuff. You, for you young people, you used to have to use a hammer and drive nails and stuff. It was really quite a bit of work. But um, um, my dad was, was, was really good in his job. He, he was great. Uh, it, was, it was always fun going to work as a kid because I'd have men walk up to me, your dad is amazing. And, and it's true. Like he could, with a skill saw, do things that most people can't even do with a, uh, you know, a table saw. Like he could rip a sheet of plywood. And it was so perfect. And, and like, I was always thinking how would I try it? It looked like a roller coaster went through the, but anyway, my dad on nailing was the best part. He'd be up on a, on a roof, putting sheeting on a roof. And he would just, he had the system that was so mechanical. He just, ching, ching, ching. it was like this movement and he would pull a nail or, you know, some nails out of his, his, his bag. And he would, I would watch him. He would, he would flip nails over without even thinking about it. Like he'd, he'd do this thing with nails, flipping nails, ching, ching, eight penny nails, ching, 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 and just nail off the whole roof in like minutes. It would have taken me a whole weekend to nail off that roof. But people would just stand and marvel and 
And you say, well, Brett, why are you talking about your dad hammering? What does that have to do with anything? On the way, the Lord would say to my dad, what's in your hand? And my dad would say, a hammer. And the Lord used that because my dad was good with a hammer and was able to build uh, and guys really respected him. It would be after work, they'd come and say, Todd, what, what, what makes you tick? Like, what, why are you the man you are? And I remember men spending you know, hours after the job because my dad wouldn't talk about that stuff during the work time. It was time to work. But after work, guys would come up as we'd be getting into the truck to go home and they'd say, hey, tell us what's the deal because our lives are a mess. And my dad, he was like a pastor on the job site. I remember bringing some of these guys home and we'd sit at the table, dinner table, and these strangers sitting across from Jenny and Tammy and me and my mom. And we'd be, my mom and dad would be sharing the gospel with some guy, some tough construction guy who's weeping at our dinner table. What was going on there? It was like the Lord said, I can use that. And man, the stories just go on and on. I remember um, back when Monty Williams was a coach up here in Portland uh, and he was an Eighth Creeker. A lot of you guys that are older Eighth Creekers know Monty was here for quite a few years and it was awesome having him. Um, but the Lord would say to Monty, what's in your hand? Well, he was a really good basketball player. Played in the NBA for years. Then, then he was a coach in the NBA. And then, then we lost him because the New Orleans Pelicans took over and made him head coach there. Uh, where then now he's at the Phoenix Suns in the NBA, he's the head coach of the Phoenix Suns. Um, but Monty was here as an eighth grade and I remember talking about that, you know, it's like, it's so cool. What's in your hand? Well, he just happened to have a basketball in his hand. Can the Lord use a basketball? Well, if you know Monty Williams, he was, he was voted a couple years ago, coach of the year in the NBA. And I, I have a hunch, it's not just because he knows basketball, but because he's a guy that sort of shepherds and shares the gospel and, He's a guy that points to Jesus all the time with a huge platform in the NBA. Um, when his wife was killed um, in a car accident, um, you know, he spoke at, at his own wife's funeral and that video went viral because he was sharing Jesus, the forgiveness of Christ and the mercy of God. And just to see how God can use a guy who, well, he had a basketball in his hand. And so I would ask you, like Moses was asked by God, what's in your hand? And you might just take a look and see what has God given you talent wise or what are you good at? And then say, Lord, I'm gonna throw that down and then pick it up and see how you might use it in a different way to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. Now, there's one final consideration that I wanna think about before we pack it up on this little narrative of the choosing of the four disciples here. Um, they left their nets and followed Jesus. The only problem is we're gonna see on Wednesday night that they actually didn't completely leave their nets they sort of kept going back. In fact, there's actually several times they went back to their nets when they probably shouldn't have. The big one uh, was after Jesus died on the cross. And this is what I wanna consider as we wrap it up is they, the disciples, tried to go back to their old ways. Do you remember when that happened? It happened there in John chapter 21. In fact, would you flip over to John in your Bible, John chapter 21. And there we read this interesting little part of the story of after they left their nets, followed Jesus, um, it's interesting to me that they followed Jesus um, for Peter, James, and John. It was three years. Everything seemed to go really well as disciples of Jesus right up until their leader was crucified, killed, and buried in a tomb. So now what do you do? Well, if you remember the narrative of the Gospel of Matthew that we just finished, Jesus gave them very clear description, instructions of what they were supposed to do after he died. And he said, in three days, I'll raise up and I'm gonna meet you over here and wait for me there. But the disciples, what do they do? Well, it's right here in John 21, verse one. It says, after these things, 
Jesus showed himself again. This is the third time he shows himself after he rose from the grave to the disciples. Showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee. And on this wise showed he himself. There were together Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter said unto them, I go a fishing. And they said unto him, we will also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately and that night they caught nothing. Isn't this something? By the way, if you're a leader of any kind, be careful the decisions you make, people will follow you. Are you a father with children? Be careful the decisions you make, your kids will follow you right where you go. Peter's a leader among the disciples. He says, I'm going fishing. He shouldn't have been going there. He was supposed to be doing something else. Jesus already gave him clear description of what he's supposed to be doing. And that was not it, to go back to the nets and the fishing and all that. So that's the first thing. Be careful who you, you know, he leads all these disciples kind of astray. But the second thing we see is he goes back to his old nets and what he finds is that he catches nothing. These are professional fishermen. This is what they did for a living for most of their lives. And now they're sitting there with empty nets and they spent a whole night toiling, but caught nothing. Well, the story goes on in verse four, but when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any meat? And they answered him, no. This is one of the great miracles of a Bible where fishermen told the truth. I mean, that's what Jesus said. Have you caught anything? Uh, no. And they should have said, uh, well, we had a few nibbles, uh, the big one that got away or whatever. Um, no, they just said no. Uh, so verse six, and he said to them, cast your net on the right side of the ship and you shall find. And they cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said unto Peter, it is the Lord. Now pause for a second. Um, this cracks me up. John, the apostle, was the apostle that Jesus loved. Who wrote this? John. It's like John says, the apostle Jesus loved yours truly. <laughs> Moi. Uh, this is funny to me. John says, the apostle Jesus loved said unto Peter, it's the Lord. John makes sure he's the, he's the one who gets the credit saying, I figured it out. It was Jesus on the seashore there. Well, now when Simon Peter heard it, there was the Lord. He girded his fisher's coat on him for he was naked and did cast himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a little ship for they were not far from land. But as it were, 200 cubits dragging the net with fishes. And as soon as they were come to land, they saw a fire on, of coals there and a fish laid thereon and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring of the fish which you have now caught. I love this. The very thing they were looking for, Jesus had all along. He was there for, it was not only caught, but it was cooking. You know, I'm not much of a seafood eater and stuff. Um, I would choose red meat over fish every day. But I wonder, I bet this was some pretty good fish. If Jesus is the cook, don't you think it's good? So you got some fish and you got some bread and some warm coals. What a picture. And the very thing that they were longing for, Jesus has right here. And, he, and um, and it says, um, verse 11, Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land full of great fishes, 153. And for all there were so many, yet the net was not broken. Why does the Bible give us the number 153? I'm not 100% sure why, but I do believe every word in the Bible, every number given to us is inspired by God for some reason. Could it be that Jerome in the ancient theologians, he said the number 153 speaks of 
you know, um, the whole world and, and the, the amount of people we should be fishers of men looking for everyone. And I think you might've been onto something, but especially when later on some biologists were studying uh, just a few decades ago, they were studying the Sea of Galilee and they did this full on report on the Sea of Galilee marine life. And they, they, they said back in the first century, the Sea of Galilee had 153 species of fish. Was that a coincidence or is that a God of wince? God says, watch this. 153 species of fish in the Sea of Galilee. I think that's pretty cool. That's how many fish they caught. I don't know. I wouldn't die on that battlefield, but I do think that there is a, something the Lord's showing. These, remember I told you you're supposed to be fishers of men, not of fish. Jesus said in verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, who art thou? Knowing that it was the Lord. And Jesus come and taketh bread and giveth them, give them fish likewise this was the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was risen from the dead. Don't you love this? This is a great story of the disciples doing the wrong thing and Jesus didn't come up to them, losers, I told you what to do and you went back to your stinking nets. That's what I probably would have told them. But Jesus lovingly just sits on the shore frying up some fish and bread, the very thing they're longing for, he's got all along. And, and just in a few minutes, he solves all their problems and there Jesus lovingly feeds them and gives them the fish and the bread. An old preacher said about this same story, he said, a few minutes labor with Christ in control will accomplish a whole night of carnal efforts. The disciples toiled all night trying to catch fish. They could do nothing apart from Christ. But with Christ, they had these fish with bread and coals and a fire. Um, Jesus wants to give us life and life abundantly. Just like he wanted to do for the disciples. And they had to go back and realize, oh yeah, it's not about our fishing nets. It's about being fishers of men. And Jesus would lovingly redirect these disciples who were misguided. I wonder how many of old Christians there are in this room who you left your nets 25 years ago and you followed Jesus wholeheartedly. But as the years have gone by, you found yourself back at the nets doing the thing, toiling, but you find yourself catching nothing and empty. I wonder if maybe the Lord would wanna refresh the call in your life to leave your nets and follow Christ. That would be something for us to think about. Man, I hope that all of you are uh, willing to ask that, even as we leave the service, say, Lord, what are the nets that I'm un unwilling to leave that's keeping me from wholeheartedly serving you, being a disciple of you? Well, Brad, how do you be a disciple? Uh, you, what's your discipleship program at Athey Creek? Oh, we have a wonderful discipleship program here. It's called Wednesday Night Bible Study. If you come Wednesday Night Bible Study, we go through the Bible verse by verse, and we're gonna cover the whole Bible. It'll only take us like 15 years. It'll be awesome. But I'm telling you, I don't think there's any better discipleship program than just to read your Bible and grow in faith, and, and then you'll know what the Lord is calling you to do and how he's leading you. So that's the challenge. As we read the gospel of Mark, let's see these disciples, how they're called, how they leave their nets and they learn to follow Jesus. May the Lord give us the same heart to leave our nets and follow him. Amen? Amen. Lord, how thankful we are that you are a loving father who has good things for our, for our uh, church family. Lord, forgive us for clinging to the plastic pearls, the things that are a waste of time things that we even think are shiny and bright or fun. But Lord, you have so much better for us. And I pray for these, your people, both online and, and watching here and attending here uh, on a Sunday, Lord, we, we just wanna be followers of you. May nothing get in the way of our walk and our being disciples 
of you, Lord. So bless these people. When the spirit is willing here at the service, our flesh becomes weak. So be our strength, Lord. Reveal to us those things we need to let go of. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.